You're about to watch a great interview on TYT interviews. If you wanna watch them live, members are the only ones who get to do that. TYTnetwork.com slash join, become a member, enjoy the interviews as they happen. Welcome to TYT Interviews, I'm Anna Kasparian and we have an excellent interview for you. I am super excited to speak to the author of The Crisis of the Middle Class Constitution. He is a legal scholar at Vanderbilt University, his name is Ganesh Sitaraman. Thank you so much for being here and being willing to have this great conversation with me about just income inequality, something that keeps coming up over and over again in modern day politics, but never gets discussed in the context of the Constitution. So thank you. Thanks for having me, it's great to be here. So uh, your book is laid out in a great way because it's, it's somewhat chronological, it kind of tells the story of America, it tells the story of our founding fathers and this emphasis on the importance of income equality and how things kind of changed one century after another, right? And so I kind of want to start from the very beginning, okay? And, and why it is that you feel that the issue of income equality is, is present in the Constitution. So the core argument of the book is that economic inequality is a threat to our constitutional system. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a surprising claim and I think a, a shocking one. And the reason why is the Constitution doesn't say anything about the middle class, it doesn't say anything about economic equality, it doesn't say anything about economic inequality. Uh, but built into the structure of the Constitution is an assumption that America would be a country with relative economic equality. And the way to see that is not by looking at the Constitution itself, but is by looking at what makes it radical. And that is why it's different than every kind of government that came before the Constitution. And so what we need to compare and where I start the book is actually how people thought about governments from the ancient Greeks all the way up till the 18th century. Mm -hmm. And the way they thought about it is that they realized that economic inequality was a serious problem and that the rich were gonna oppress the poor or the poor would try to overthrow the rich and confiscate their wealth. And the result would be strife, violence and revolution. And so the answer throughout most of history for how you solve this problem of the clash between rich and poor uh, was to build economic class right into the structure of government. Mm -hmm. So in uh, in England, there's the House of Lords for the wealthy, there's the House of Commons for everybody else. And they serve as a way of checking one another. A check on each other mm -hmm. um, and also a share in government for both sides. Uh, and so, you know, ancient Rome is, is the same thing. There's a patrician senate and there's a tribune of the plebs, the plebeians mm -hmm. for the poor. So what's striking about our constitutional system is we don't have a tribune of the plebs. We don't have a House of Lords, you might think the Senate is that, but there's no property requirements to be a member of the Senate mm -hmm. uh, or any other member of the federal government. And these were well-known design strategies. In fact, the founding generation debated exactly these things in the state constitutions in the 1770s and 1780s. Mm -hmm. Our constitution, our federal constitution doesn't have any provisions like that. And that's a big change, it's a radical change. And the reason I argue in the book that we don't have that is people believed that America was relatively equal and that as a result, we weren't gonna have the problem of rich and poor clashing. And they therefore, they didn't need to build any of those structures into our system of government. So do you feel like that structure wasn't built into our system of government because there was just this implication that you know equality would be I don't know, celebrated, it would be maintained? Or do you think that it was just like 
a lack of our founding fathers, uh, to, a lack of ability for our founding fathers, fathers to see into the future and realize that there would be, you know, corrupting forces that would kind of change things, and it, things wouldn't be equal much longer. So it's a weird combination of both. Mm-hmm. Um, on the one hand, uh, they believed that equality uh, existed and would continue to exist in America. So they and assumed so that. They assumed that, and mm-hmm. the reason they assumed it was there was no feudalism in America. There's no hereditary aristocracy in America, unlike Europe in both cases. The richest people in America, your George Washingtons who have these big houses like Mount Vernon and plantations, that's just nothing compared to the dukes and duchesses of England who have marble palaces. Mm -hmm. Not a comparison in terms of the wealth. And then the other big difference is America has all this land. And their thought is as long as there's land available, people will be able to move to that land and set up as yeoman farmers. They'll be economically independent. They'll have a share in property, which was the main form of wealth at the time in the in the late 18th century. This is before industrialization. Right. Um, and so they assumed that that would continue to persist for a long time. They did partly anticipate the future. They were very worried about corruption. They were very worried about commerce. They thought about that a lot. Um, but they thought that those kinds of changes would happen so far into the future that it would be for future generations to deal with those problems. So James Madison, towards the end of his life uh, in, in the 1820s, in 1829, 1830, um, worries that in about 100 years, the land of America will be all filled up. Mm-hmm. And at that point, 1930, almost on the edge of the Depression, the wisest patriots of the next generation will have to revise the laws and institutions of the country in order to adapt to those changes. So they were thinking, they looked forward, but it seemed very distant to them, and they partly didn't think they could predict how to adapt to those kind of conditions. So while it seems as though they celebrated income equality and making sure that individuals kind of stood on the same economic footing, there were some, I guess, inequalities when it came to race, right? And so Andrew Jackson is an example. While he did fight against corruption, he did fight against you know too much power concentrated within the banks. He was pretty hideous to Native Americans and wasn't necessarily, wasn't actually a, you know, a fighter against slavery and things like that. So how do you respond to someone who might you know, challenge you with that question? Great, so it's more than, first it's more than some inequalities, yeah, right? So yeah. there's, there's slavery, there's the um, confiscation of lands uh, from, from Native Americans, there's the treatment of women right. uh, throughout this period. And, and we have to remember that in a lot of these cases, this isn't just inequality, this mm-hmm. is violent uh, action uh, that is taken throughout, throughout the 19th century um, and, and beyond on both ends. Uh, so, so it's a serious problem. Yes. Um, so, so how does that story fit? Well, the story that I've told about equality at the time of the founding, um, that you needed to have equality to have a republic, mm-hmm. uh, is a story... Um, that's about who's in the political community. And so the argument is that in order to have a republic on this tradition, um, you had to have relative economic equality within the political community. And, And the problem or the question is, well, who gets to be in that community? And that's a question that's been fiercely and violently contested in our history. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think when we look back, we can trace another tradition, not just this kind of egalitarian tradition I trace in the book, but a tradition of inclusion where over time we've expanded who's in the political community um, from a group of white men to everybody. And that happened over a couple hundred years. 
The, the most important thing, I think, from, from the perspective of our constitutional system is what happens when these two things intersect. Mm -hmm. So uh, throughout our history, they always ha haven't intersected. The Jacksonians are a good example. They're progressive on economic issues, but not on race or gender issues. Right. Uh, the Reconstruction Republicans fought for equal rights uh, for the former slaves of the South, but didn't enfranchise women. Um, so throughout our history, we've, we've had movements that have integrated these things in different ways. Um, the real challenge is if you want to have our constitutional system, a system that doesn't have checks built into it based on economic class, then you have to ensure that everyone in the political community can be in the middle class. Right. And so the so when you expand the population of who's in the middle uh, in the community, you have to make sure that they have an economic opportunity to join the middle class too. And we've sort of done the opposite of that. While we've included uh, certain groups of people, a certain demographic into or certain demographics into this, uh, you know, political inclusion, we haven't really thought about economic opportunities for and, them. And this has been one of the great persistent failures, um, which is a story that I tell in the book over multiple uh, uh, decades and, and centuries. Um, and I'll just give one example. So Reconstruction, uh, after the Civil War, the Reconstruction Republicans understand that you cannot have a republic without relative economic equality and that the South has never been a republic is what they say mm -hmm. uh, up until this point. And so Thaddeus Stevens, who is one of the Reconstruction Republicans from Pennsylvania, um, he argues for confiscating the lands of the top 10% of Confederate planters and redistributing that land to their former slaves mm -hmm. in 40 acre parcels. This is the time period where 40 acres and a mule comes from. And he believed that this was necessary, um, mandated and, and commanded by the 13th Amendment uh, and necessary to have a republic in the South. Now, this fails, right? Reconstruction fails on these economic grounds. Mm -hmm. um, but they understood that you had to have not just political freedom, but also economic equality as well. And you just walked us through, uh, you know, what our founding fathers kind of assumed about the United States, this assumption of equality, economic opportunities for all, as long as you were included in this tight-knit political circle. But things kind of started to change with industrialization. And I want you to walk me through that a little bit because that is something that maybe our founding fathers didn't really see coming. And it had this huge effect on, on income inequality among Americans. So tell me a little bit about that. So Industrialization changes everything. Um, we move from being a country where uh, most work is agricultural or mm -hmm. artisanal to a country where work is done but through wage labor in factories. Uh, with that also comes urbanization. We see the closing of the frontier during the Gilded Age. Uh, we see revolutions in transportation, communications, all these kinds of different technologies, the rise of the corporation, and then the creation of monopolies and trusts. This all happens in this period after the Civil War uh, in, in, in great measure. Um, and people at the time understand that this is a crisis, and not just an economic crisis, but a constitutional crisis. And the reason why is because they acknowledge that these changes in the economy are undoing the economic preconditions for our constitutional system. Mm -hmm. And I think what's exciting about this period, and it's really one of the um, less studied periods, I think, for, for most of us when you're growing up in school, for example, the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era, uh, is how extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily innovative the people at this time were. So the populists during this period and then the progressives um, directly tried to confront the problem of economic power. 
And they did so in two ways. The first is they looked at the economic side and they invented antitrust laws in right. order to break up big consolidations of wealth. They created public utilities regulations, which was to say we should accept the monopoly, but regulate it heavily so that it can't overcharge people on prices or discriminate in access. Um, this was the generation of people that uh, passed the income tax amendment. It's an amendment to the Constitution requiring that people who uh, earn more um, could then actually pay more in taxes. Uh, so we have progressive taxation. So that's on the economic side. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just focusing on the wealthy and the powerful. On the economic side, they also did a lot to help the people who were not that powerful. Minimum wages, maximum hours legislation uh, emerged in this period. The, the eight hour workday, the 40 hour work week. Um, in the 1892 populist platform, uh, the populists argue for equal pay for equal work for women. Mm -hmm. It says exactly that phrase, equal pay for That's equal amazing. work. Could be out of 2016, you know, but right. um, so, so this is a group of people who are thinking about the economics and they're also thinking about how economic power corrupts politics. So, so let's stop right there yeah. because I want you to kind of delve into what encouraged or motivated these individuals to fight for economic equality because is, is it something that Americans pushed for and all of a sudden you have these candidates, these politicians that really genuinely want to represent the best interests of the electorate or were these politicians that just realize we have a problem coming up and we need to protect the equality that you know we've been taking advantage of and enjoying. So the answer is it's both. Mm -hmm. um, so on the one hand, you have uh, you have lots of agitation from below. So you have you have organizers all across the country. There's groups like the Knights of Labor and the Farmers Alliance and the Populists who are. Uh, rallying people and there's strike waves, there's protests, there's lots of things going on, grassroots organization. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's leaders, there's elected leaders, there's people who are running for the Senate, there's people who are running for president, there's people running for governor uh, in all of these different states um, who are pushing for this. Some of these people you've heard of, Teddy Roosevelt says, right. there can be no political democracy without an economic democracy. Um, there's people like fighting Bob LaFollette in Wisconsin. Uh, so there's people all over the place kind of pushing this agenda, William Jennings Bryan, and another. So both leaders and and people at the grassroots. And I think what's important is when they do make change, and we should talk a little bit more about how you actually get change. It takes both. It takes the people pushing from below, and it takes the leaders who want to actually reform the system. Absolutely. And you know, Roosevelt did incredible things for the economy. He did incredible, obviously, with the New Deal and everything. But you know, if you do fast forward to today and you kind of talk about how much we've changed since then, you know, there might be an electorate that understands that there are deep economic issues in America, but there is a corrupting factor that plays a role in preventing our politicians, even the most democratic politicians from representing the best economic interests of the electorate. And so how does that play a role? And did the founding fathers provide protections against the type of corruption that we're dealing with now? So um, let, let me start with the second part, which yeah. is, you know, are there things that are built in? And, and the answer is in some places, yes. Mm -hmm. So we have things like the emoluments clause, which is in the constitution, which people are now talking quite a bit about because the founders were worried about corruption. Um, so there are things like that in the constitution. Are there things that would address exactly the kind of corruption that we have today? Uh, not as much. Mm -hmm. um, in some places like emoluments, there, there are, but in other places there aren't. Um, but what there is, is the power of the legislator 
and the legislatures to act, so both at the state level and at the federal level. Um, and I think that's why the progressive era is so instructive, because in that time of extreme change in the economy, and similar today, a time when there was a lot of concentrated wealth and power, mm -hmm. Uh, what you saw was legislators at the state level and at the federal level coming in to take action to address the corruption of that time. So the first campaign finance regulations happened during that time period. There's a constitutional amendment to have the direct election of senators to try to prevent corruption within the state legislatures where mm -hmm. there's a lot of bribery going on to pick senators. Um, so they take action and I think that's instructive for today because we have the power already through our legislatures to make those kinds of changes. Um, what so it takes change, then is legislators to do it. So you're saying the change starts on a more local level or on a state level? It, it can happen at the state or at the federal level, but I think that the place to think about it is it's a political change or a policy change. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily a lever that's written into the text of the Constitution. The Constitution gives us the power to be able to make changes, but what the content of those changes are is up to us. Oh, that's, you know, it, that sounds. Optimistic, um, and when I think about just the way things are playing out in politics today, it just seems so incredibly unlikely. Because again, I go back to the corruption. I go back to the issue of money in politics, and that, whether we like it or not, does sway the decision making of our lawmakers, right? Uh, it, whether or not they're going to push for aggressively push for the types of reforms that we need uh, in Wall Street and the types of uh, regulations we need to break up the big banks. Like you know, there's a lot of talk on the campaign trail, but there's very little action um, among our lawmakers. And so, you know, I, yes, it's instructional uh, looking back at the progressive era and realizing what they were able to accomplish. But it just concerns me because I feel like we're not in the same state. Well, so so let me let me concern you a little more and a little bit less. Okay. So so <laughs> on the less side, mm -hmm. you know, if you think back to the early 20th century, the late 19th century, one of the things I talk about in the book is it's not campaign finance like donations to campaigns like we have today. There was outright bribery. Mm -hmm. Right, that is a that is a much bigger problem, a, a very different kind of problem to solve. Right, uh, and imagine trying to fix that. Right, at least now there's some norms against that I mean, kind of thing and laws against those kinds of things. To be quite honest so, with you, yeah, it, it it's worse, I guess. But it's for me more a logistical thing, right? So do right. I give you the money and put it right in your pocket, or right. you know, Does do I give it to your group so, who then gives it to you? And so here's why you should feel worse. Um, if you think back to, if you think about how the kind of indirect version of money works today, mm -hmm. it's even harder. You can stop quid pro quo bribery. I give you a, you know, um, a briefcase filled with money. Right. Um, but the challenge is, what if instead the people with the money just fund all the think tanks, and all the think tanks only produce research that comes out in favor of the interest that just funded them. I mean, we're just experiencing uh, this, that now. And so, yeah. so the kind of pervasity of how money operates and how it infects everything is actually worse in some ways today than just campaign donations, right? right? And I think most people who are, my, my guess is, and I, and I you know, cite a number of congressmen who say things like this, who, who are in Congress, don't think that the campaign contributions are, are a bribe. Some of them say, well, it's a reward. I was already gonna take the position and they're just supporting things they knew I was gonna do. Um, but the really pernicious part isn't even that. It's that they spend all their time then raising money from the wealthiest people. And if you spend all your time with those people, you start hearing their concerns, 
which are not the same as the concerns of working people. That is a and, great point. And uh, it just skews your brain and how you think about what's important. Where you have this huge disparity between the wealthiest people and the poorest people, uh, the top 1% owning the majority of the wealth. So let's talk about that a little bit because you really do focus on the importance of income uh, or the equality of income and how it protects, it essentially protects our entire system of government, right? Um, now, there seems to be a lot of misconceptions among Americans as to why they're in a poor economic state, right? That was an issue that came up over and over again during this past election. Rural white Americans feel like they've been left behind and to a large extent they have been left behind. But they believe they've been left behind for all sorts of reasons that don't really compute. So why do you think that is? Why do you think income inequality continues to be a problem, but people have so many different perspectives on, on why it's an issue? So I think people have a lot of different perspectives because I think there's been a lot of contributing factors. Mm -hmm. um, and so some of these things, um, lots of different people pick one, some pick many, but uh, take for example, you know, we could talk about trade and globalization which has impacted um, a set of people, uh, workers, um, particularly in some industrial areas. Uh, automation and technology, um, another set of people have been impacted by that. There's a variety of public policy changes, um, tax rates, uh, antitrust prosecutions and consolidation, uh, the move towards short-termism in how corporations often think about uh, their investments and their bottom line, deregulation across mm -hmm. a variety of sectors, which is both um, uh, can harm workers, the war, uh, the, the kind of uh, uh, aggressive efforts to dismantle unions um, has been a big part of, of what's happened uh, as well. So, so there's a number of different things I think that have been a big part of this of this story. Um, and then on the other side of the ledger, ledger, not just the things that have caused it, there's been the inattention to it in terms of affirmative policy where we can actually try to advance the ball. So if you look back at history, Throughout our history, we did active things to try to create opportunity. The GI Bill, the highway system, the land-grant colleges, mm -hmm. right? All of these things helped expand opportunity. In the last generation, what we've seen is cutbacks on the kinds of things that expand opportunity. So on both sides, we've actually made things worse. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. And so it's one thing to have corrupt politicians fight back against the best interests of the electorate, right? To want to deregulate, to want to do away with, let's say, investments in clean energy, just as a specific example, to increase the number of jobs, especially in these areas that have lost jobs due to globalization or automation. Um, and it's a completely different thing to have an electorate that's very, very split, very polarized. And there's a huge disagreement right now as to whether or not regulation makes sense. You know, you have libertarians who say, let the free market decide, deregulate as much as possible, and things will somehow miraculously improve. Like, why is it that, you know, if you look at our past and you look at case study after case study, these reforms and these regulations make sense and it leads to a decrease in income inequality, yet, Today, we have so many different and conflicting perspectives on what works and what doesn't. So I think one of the biggest challenges that we've had in the last generation is that we have not been fighting an argument with an argument. Mm -hmm. There have been a lot of arguments on the side of deregulation. There have been a lot of arguments on the side of why government is bad at everything. There have been many fewer arguments on the side of 
why it matters to have worker safety standards in factories, why it matters to have clean air and clean water. Um, there's some talk about this, but certainly not at the same level or pitch or emphasis, I think, as on the, on the other side. Um, and so I think there's been a serious mismatch in the kind of advocacy that's full-throated and not defensive mm -hmm. um, it, for a variety of things that are actually really in the public good. And I think a lot of people throughout our history would be astonished by some of the conversations that we're having um, because they, they deny uh, that we actually do have common goals as a country mm -hmm. um, and that we should use our democracy to try to achieve those goals. Um, and I think there's a lot of people who, who don't seem to, to believe that anymore and that's very concerning. Um, and because I think that's really what the heart of having a republic, a representative democracy is about. It's about us getting to choose our own future. Finally, I wanted to talk a little bit about the issue of money in politics and whether or not you as a legal scholar believe that it is possible to undo some of the damage that we've experienced with you know, Supreme Court rulings like Citizens United. Uh, the Young Turks, of course, is a media outlet, but there is an advocacy arm. Uh, and one of the things that TYT advocates for is getting money out of politics through a constitutional amendment. And so you know, we've gotten a lot of pushback against that you know, from individuals who think that it could actually end up terrible if we have a constitutional convention and uh, the right wing gets its way as a result result of that. But I want you to kind of jump in and tell me what you think. I don't, I don't know if you know too much about Wolfpack, but I want you to talk more broadly about whether or not it's really possible to get money out of politics. So if, so right now what we have is a Supreme Court that has made a bunch of decisions, Citizens United, you mentioned is one of them, that severely restrict the ability of the federal Congress to pass laws addressing money in politics. Uh, and they do this under the First Amendment. So if you wanted to change that, you would either need the Supreme Court to change its opinions, which it could do. It just needs five votes to do so. And a lot of these cases, including Citizens United, are 5-4 votes. Um, so if you had a 5-4 the other way, you have a highly plausible case. Very Four very smart jurists went the other direction in, in Citizens United. Mm -hmm. um, and that would allow you to make the kinds of changes without a constitutional amendment. In the absence of a court that would go back and change its previous precedents, you have to go to a constitutional amendment. Now, an amendment is different than a convention. Mm -hmm. So I think what you can have is a constitutional amendment without having another constitutional convention. And the danger to a constitutional convention mm -hmm. is that it opens up the entire constitution. And the way to think about this is we got our constitution from a constitutional convention that got rid of the entire system of government, the Articles of Confederation right. that existed before. Uh, and the members of the Constitutional Convention were not tasked with the job of getting rid of the articles, and they took that upon themselves. A new Constitutional Convention could do the same thing. Most of the amendments we've had to the Constitution have just, I mean, all the amendments that we've had have been uh, individual amendments. Mm -hmm. um, even the Bill of Rights, I mean, there, there wasn't a separate convention, it's individual amendments. So you could have just a specific individual amendment to overturn Citizens United or to go back further and overturn Buckley against Vallejo, which is the case that says money is speech. Right. Um, and, and I think something in that area is what you would have to do uh, if you wanted to really be able to pass legislation that restricts the, the flow of money in politics. All right, uh, I, I wish I could talk to you about this all day because it's super fascinating, uh, but lucky for for you guys, you can check out his book, uh, The Crisis of the Middle Class Constitution. It's a great read. In fact, uh, you will probably read it in 
two or three days because you won't want to put it down. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And uh, make sure you check out his work. Where can people find you on social media? Uh, you can find me at Ganesh Sitaraman on Twitter. Uh, and I uh, hope you'll uh, join me there. Awesome. Thank you so much for watching, everyone. We'll see you soon. If you like the interview that you just watched, I got great news for you. If you become a Young Turks member, you can watch them live as they happen. Only the members get that. You also get Young Turks live. You also get Aggressive Progressive live and Old School live. Everything is available for the members and commercial free. tytnetwork.com slash join.